Evergreens in an endless autumn. Six months have passed since the cool winds of September raked through the brittle grass of Valley Glean like fingers in an old woolen blanket, yet the fall has not since ended. That same cold breeze, as sharp and as bitter as a dagger at midnight, still cuts through the piles of shriveled, brown bodies that line the streets and the deep blue hue of the sky has saturated to a shade beyond what any of us could ever have dared to comprehend. It is an eternal blue. The fall started just as most often do, after a hot, wet summer that crescendoed into a clangy, thunderous lightning storm. Mama and I were out rocking on the porch step. We had exhausted the day plucking our small orchids nearly bare of fresh apples. When the air began to taste of oncoming rain, and the song of the cicadas swiftly stopped like a spinning record without a needle. We watched and waited until the pitter-patter on the tin roof began, and then the crack of God's whip licked the sky like a scab of light, and down came the rest of the water. It was a heavy rain, heavier than any other that summer. Yet from where we were perched, Mama and I were dry as bones. The cattle, however, were not as fortunate, and while the pigs might have had a field day in the fresh mud, all the other critters of the night were hunkered down as we were, including the chickens in their coop and the dog from the yard. Old Bestie had found her way under Mama's chair, after I had spoiled her with the rest of my half-chewed honeycrisp, and continued in that position until we called it a night. Thus ended the last day of summer. When we awoke the following morning, a fresh September morning, neither Mama nor myself expected the harsh transition into the fall equinox that awaited us outside. The sky was now a bright, cheery blue. Every drop of rain six feet under the dew-covered browning grass and the trees radiated the same yellow as the sunlight, spun with hints of red like gala apples. We moseyed on down to the steps and into the yard, taking Betsy with us, and there wasn't a trace of humidity in the air to be found. It was a crisp air, nearly as crinkled as the leaves beneath our boots, and as cool and nippy as we had hoped for after the dog's days had ended, the dog and the other animals felt the same. Old Betsy was frolicking. The cows were grazing what little green grass remained, and the chickens were out of their coop. The mud had dried, but that didn't stop the pigs from their play. Scattered across our land and all throughout Valley Glean were the shed leaves of maple and ash, same as the ones that snapped as we strut. The children kicked them down empty blocks and rode them to the school as passengers in their spokes. Despite the breeze that stung like a bumblebee, there was a certain warmth throughout our little town, and as soon as I had bundled myself in that gifted jacket from Mama that hung in the closet since Christmas past, I could feel it, too. Thus ended the first day of autumn. The sight that beheld us the following morning was nothing shy of disorientating. In fact, I had mistakenly assumed myself to be drunk on rum, 
when I had first noticed the colour coming through the window blinds. A blue, nearly purple shade that stretched across the room like a rug. I had hopped from my slumber in thinking I had slept well past the morning dew, but the still clicking clock swore to me that it was only a quarter past six. Peering through the window only furthered my suspicions. The sky was a near black, and the rising sun appeared to be setting already. The shrubbery along the window sill was also alarming, nearly kissed brown with splotches of bare branches. The entire landscape looked as if God had laden his brush heavy with the idyllic colours of an auburn twilight, only the day had just begun. Thus, in the same way it had started, ended the second day of autumn. On the third day, just as all the days since, the darkness of night was broken by the unrelenting gaze of blue that swept throughout our land, only day by day increasing in its saturation. It is as if a sponge has been left to soak in a bucket of paint, and day by day, what little hint of orange or yellow remained in that sky slowly rots into blackish blue. It is not only the sky that rots, however, but the trees, the grasses, and the rest of summer's flora. In their places, laced across the front and backyards alike, wrap the gangling vines of gourds and pumpkins that grow far beyond what God himself had intended. One such, a great squash of the Connecticut fields, had by that point eclipsed the tire of my 68 Chevy like it were the moon. It has since engulfed it. That afternoon, as the list of the summer's warm breezes clashed against the howling winds of autumn's birthing pains, there was a great storm that rattled the house and shook the trees, dumping a great many leaves into the yard and scattering them about. The continued gusts of cold air struck the windows and rolled some of the gourds down the hill like oblong bowling balls, and the surges of power that caused by snap power lines throughout the valley green rendered my CPAP breathing machine useless, and I dare not sleep that night without it. Thus ended the third day of autumn. The morning that followed, I had awoken with a strain in my eyes. Though the blinds were all closed and the doors all shut, the house was bathed in the vivid hue of a vibrant blue and the cold nip of the outside air. I checked the thermostat, it was nearly 40 degrees. In a place like Valley Glen, a temperature that chilly was only seen around Christmas time, never that early in the year. My wife had felt it too. She had awoken with a cough, a cold, and I fared my best to remedy her symptoms with a piping warm mug of coffee drizzled with honey from the comb. She thanked me and sat before the foggy window, bundled in a blanket, until calling me over to make note of the outstretched vines that had travelled down the lonesome road toward Valley Glen Square. The gourds were now the size of terracotta clay jars, and the pumpkins were as wide as hay bales. Bent over them like crooked, jagged guardian angels were the barren tree that spread their leaves far and wide, so far and wide that not even a blade of browning grass saw the sun. And that yellow spectre, too, despite having only just arisen, reared its glistening head for what seemed to be only moments before ducking beneath the horizon again and shading the land in pitch-black darkness. Thus ended the fourth short day of autumn.
The fifth began as the fourth hand, with the sheer sheen of the cloudless autumn sky and the raspy coughing of my wife beside me. She had been gasping for breath all night, and when we had both finally tuckered out from restlessness, it seemed that rest was only a short reprieve. When we both had awoken to the brightness throughout the window blinds, I had wrongfully assumed a complexion to be a result of the strange colours that emitted from outside. I was wrong. Her skin was now the shade of a duckling, as if she were ill from jaundice, and her sunken eyes were the deeper, richer tint of the same colour, nearly orange. Her hair was falling out in clumps, and she had lost a tooth in the night. She gripped me with one hand, coughed into her other, and, as it trembled, extended the sprinkled red along her yellowed fingertips to my eyes. I had called Dr. Sampson not five minutes later, after bringing poor Mama a glass of cold water, nearly frozen though, left on the kitchen counter the night before. Dr. Sampson answered abruptly as if expected, and informed me of her symptoms before I had even uttered a word. My wife, it seemed, was not alone to suffer her illness in Valley Glean. However, just as for the others, not much was there to change but to let whatever it was simply run its course. For the remainder of the day, Mama sat silently, except for the whimpers of Betsy beneath her rocker and watched as the deep blue seeped into every corner of the sky above, and the orange and brown crept across the ground below. The only hint of greenery to be seen were those few select trees that, for whatever God's reason, never seemed to shed their leaves. The evergreens. It was that ever so green that was a comfort in some strange way to both of us, though the companionship of that tinge was only shortly lived. Before long, the screeching sunset, even earlier on arrival than the day before, burned every colour of the earth and deep blue sky above into a molten shade of orange. Like a courier and Ives print if the colours began to bleed out onto the floor. Thus ended the fifth day of autumn. There was a great squealing that had awoken me from my slumber the morning of the sixth day, and immediately I clutched the cold hand of Mama to make sure she was all right. It wasn't her. The screaming, instead, had come from outside, beyond the windows of which rich blue light seemed to ooze into our farmhouse. I had taken my coat from the rack and made it a step down to the creaking porch stairs when my slipper slipped into a thick bundling of dried-out leaves, a pile of crackling orange and brown whose colours were far deeper than my foot. I lifted my shoe from its depths, but... I surveyed the rest of the yard, and I realized rather quickly that there was no alternate footing. The entirety of our land was coated in fallen leaves, a layer of rustling litter at least a foot deep. Then the squealing came again, this time louder and seemingly closer. I trudged through the browning colors in my pajamas and jacket until I reached the splintering fence, which, beyond it, held in the likes of those chickens and their coop, and the cattle, and the pigs. No such creatures stirred any more. Instead, the wailing of the hog which had awoken me came from beneath a dense pile of leaves, and I brushed them aside to see Clarabelle, our pot-belly sputter, a gurgle of blood, and fall limp against the dead grass beneath her. 
There was fungus and a great many toadstools protruding from her skin and all around her. Along the patch of earth were budding mushrooms that stuck out from between mounds of leaves, and the carcasses of the cattle who had grazed the grasses bare. Clarabelle was always Mama's pig, and I had taken the bell around her neck with me as I plodded back up to our home, reverently holding it in my shivering hands and wondering how to break the news to my wife that all the livestock, including her prized pig, were now dead. But there were bigger problems inside. Mama was sitting at the table, the steam from a piping cup of Joe rising from her grip. She turned to me with a faded, cracked smile, and I stopped cold in my tracks. My wife was orange, and the thin skin that surrounded her beady, sunken eyes was a sickly brown. They were the same, saturated tones as the leaves that fluttered across the lawn. Immediately, I tried to hoist her to her feet, but her weight nearly snapped between my arms. She fell back into the seat with another tired cough and shook her head a silent no. I clutched her cold hands in mine, still holding the bell. She took in a breath, which was increasingly harder to do, as the fall continued, and gazed up at me tearfully her lips crackling inaudibly. I began to weep as she fell into herself. Thus ended the sixth day of autumn. I failed to rest all night, merely sat up in bed and watched as the blackness brightened into blue outside, but was awoken from whatever stupor may have clutched me by the hideous odour that penetrated my nostrils. The air was thin enough already, but when the stench had seized me, I gasped and burst into a fit of coughing and nearly vomited out on the floor. I grabbed the nearby CPAP machine, resting beside the bed and pressed it to my lips as if it were a gas mask from the Great War and huffed and puffed. I could for once in many days breathe again. Downstairs my wife, or rather, the husk. That my now dilly departed had left behind was rotten, withered in the chair in the kitchen. Old Betsy had smelled her too, only the soft white fur from her coat was now the shade of cinnamon as she whined at Mama's shriveled feet. The mug of coffee was still placed beside her on the table, frozen over her as the temperature only grew chiller, and I reached out to touch her brown skin. Her fingers snapped upon the lightest brush of my hand and crumbled to the floor. I gagged into my mask and ran to the other side of the room, where the only comfort to be found was the basket of apples that never made their way into one of Mama's pies. They were all putrid brown and writhing with worms. That afternoon, I'd called Dr. Sampson again after covering all the doors and windows. Wherever that blue light leaked through, it now hurt to stare at for long periods, and the mere colour dug into my jaw and rang the drums of the ears. When the doctor finally did answer, he sounded both excitable and terrified, all in the same breath. He begged of me not to go outside, not to dare smell it, and I questioned him. Why? 
but he never gave a cohesive answer. He rambled on about leaves and lungs, the mutual exchange of oxygen and carbon dioxide, and how the earth itself was shedding. I then asked of him, why then? Both of us were still breathing what little air we had, but he didn't know. I did. However, we were the evergreens. Unfortunately for old Betsy, though, she was not. Before the day was through, that cinnamon-coloured fur had completely fallen off like needles from a larch, leaving behind only the wrinkly skin of a now-boldened bitch. Until, at last, gasp. That had fallen off too. Thus ended the first week of autumn. Before long, despite how gruelling it might have seemed, that week became weeks. Halloween came and went, the most frightening of them, all by mere virtue of the season. And then those weeks became months. Six terrible months. So much as we can tell. Those of us who dared to step outside, perhaps with no alternative, our eyes covered and bodies wrapped in what warmth we had, took to throwing as many bodies as we could manage into the warming bonfires that crackle. Now, day and night, along the hills to Red Valley glean of the smell that keeps many of us awake, the ones that remain, left on curbs of which children no longer walk nor ride their bicycles, merely seep back into the earth and keep the cornstalks and gourds and pumpkins ever growing. Their scent so potent that a whiff of the wind tastes of one of Mama's pies and goes me to gag and cry at the same time. Everything outside our windows remains frozen in place just as the fall has been, and we often collectively contemplate whether or not the strange season of the valley lingers beyond its borders, especially where it is not yet autumn. The clocks, however, have lost all purpose of their ticking, and therefore we cannot tell with any certainty whether or not we have even reached the winter months. As we suspect, all we know is that the days grow even shorter, some seemingly less than mere hours. What used to be hours? Father Briggs now raves on at the pulpit, foaming at the lip about the end of days we have found ourselves in. He swears that death's harvest will be plentiful, and that, perchance, the colours of hell have fallen onto the earth in shades of fire and brimstone. It seems that even Dr. Sampson believes his rantings. We pray daily that the warmth of a radiant spring will thaw the once lively town of Valley Glean and end this endless fall. I only fear if an impending spring buds what fauna and flora lie in the wake of autumn and winter's chill back to life. Perhaps this eternal autumn is sparing us from whatever, whom, ever else may spring along with it. Evergreens in an Endless Autumn is written by Mac Ralston. A Light I Couldn't See I didn't know elephants lived in England. My comments seemed to catch Mrs. Hartford off guard, but her surprise quickly melted away into understanding. Oh, not elephants, Marcus. We're going to see a gathering of elephant hawk moths. The name befuddled my year five mind. For my brothers and sisters over in the US and elsewhere, that's fourth grade. 
How could a moth also be an elephant and a bird? Mrs. Hartford continued. These moths are nocturnal. Do you remember what nocturnal means? I paused for a moment, rummaging through my disordered memories of our live and kicking class. Um, does it mean they come out at night? That's right. Mrs. Hartford beamed with a warm smile. It was a Thursday night in August, the sort of night accompanied by a warm and gentle breeze. The school trip was previously planned for Friday night, but almost the entire class protested at this. No kid wants to spend their Friday evening participating in curricular activities. That isn't to say we weren't excited. The night lends a certain mystique to the world that draws you in. What might we find ahead just past the darkness? Honestly, though, it was more likely because I was with my best friend, Clyde. He had always been a rowdy type, always trying his damnedest to squeeze a giggle out of me during class until being scolded. I admit his antics did distract me from my work, but I never found myself lagging behind the rest of my classmates. At the time, we didn't really care for a bunch of moths. But Mr. Alban sparked our interest as we walked with him down the path behind the old brewery. Has Miss told you anything else about what we're going to see, boys? Just a bunch of insects, right? I hope they don't land on me, said Clyde. I never expected him to be the squeamish type when we first met, but that was revealed to me when he screamed to high hell and back after a grasshopper jumped onto his face the previous summer. Well, yes, there's a bunch of insects. Moths do gather on occasion, but that tends to only happen with ones that come out during the day. And never on the scale we're about to see. Trust me, just wait and see. Okay, Clyde replied. He set his focus on the path again, like he hadn't taken in a word Mr. Alban had just said. I had, though. Why are there so many? No one knows. A friend of Mrs. Gillian stumbled onto it taking a dog for a night walk the other day. She said they looked like they were being attracted by something. But that's it. Mrs. Gillian used to be my teacher in year two but she seemed to have aged in only a year after her husband's death. I didn't fully grasp the strength that woman had at the time, but I do now. She retired from teaching and opted to be a school nurse and counsellor in one. Her sympathy was so pure and honest, I'll never understand how she did it. She was on this trip too since her granddaughter Lily was in the same class as me. I saw her walking around ahead of us holding on to Lily's hand, though only barely restraining her unbridled excitement. We made our way down the wide, sloped field, in the direction of the tree line. The pine forest was separated at the boundary by merely three reels of barbed wire, held up across the weary yet steadfast chestnut posts. The way they swayed in the breeze reminded me of a guitar being strummed. But the night was quiet. Unnaturally so. We'd all been given flashlights to boost our chances of meeting these elephant hawks, but they were cheap and flimsy little things. The shadows seemed unfazed by their meagre beams. I didn't feel scared, though. Being amongst my classmates and teachers brought comfort to me, dispelling that fear of the darkness that children know all too well. Catch! Clyde yelled, and I turned to see a stick flying in my direction. I just barely caught it, and before I could even get my bearings, he was on me, 
swinging his own stick like a pirate with a cutlass. Have at you! He exclaimed as I blocked his feral assault with my own weapon. Our battle was short-lived as Mrs. Hartford grasped Clyde's imagined greatsword mid-swipe. Clyde, behave yourself, or I'll take you back up to the car park. He averted his gaze and nodded meekly, setting off again with the rest of the group. The sudden burst of action left me energized, but I bottled it up as well and followed. We were walking along the old fence when we first saw them. I had expected nothing more than little brown blurs flitting about the air, but the dazzling pink patterns they sported caught me off guard. I heard Lily cry out in wonder. Look, Nanny, they're so pretty. They were beautiful. I had never thought of insects as matching and brilliant with the rest of nature, but I was proven wrong that night. The more we went on, the thicker the storm of colours became. Clyde was hesitant at first, but even he became allured into the moment. His expression morphed from one of distrust into one of amazement. I took notice of the flowers that spotted the fields beside us. There were galliums, cow parsleys, and willow herbs from what I can recall. Strangely, the moths seemed to have no interest in the flowers, choosing instead to dart around aimlessly at the forest's border. If the sight of the moths wasn't incredible enough, a bat zipped by just inches from my face, swiping one of the insects mid-flight and fleeing from my view. I heard Alexandra, another classmate, gasp behind me, then let out an upset groan. I never understood why some people are so shocked to see the food chain's natural cycle. But I'll cut her some slack. She was only nine after all. Hey, Mark. Look there. I heard Clyde whisper from my left. I turned to see his flashlight pointing into the darkness between the pines, just barely illuminating something. I focused on it and realized it was just more of the moths. Not just more, but a lot more. Only faintly illuminated, it appeared as if the hawk moths were swirling in a dense mass akin to a school of fish, but more tightly packed. What are they doing? I found myself asking Mr. Alban to my right. I don't know, he replied after a moment. It looks like they're being drawn in by something. Never seen anything like it. His expression unsettled me. His eyes were wide, but not with the same amazement as earlier, closer to an intense focus or a bewildered fascination. I looked back over to Clyde, only to see the same look on his face. My confusion grew as streams of moths fluttered their way into the trees in a voyage towards something. Their flickering bodies merged to form more bizarre masses of quivering wings, still barely visible beyond the shadows. My attention was pulled back to my friend once more when I heard him mutter something. Whoa. It was a sound of pure enthrallment. No sooner had I turned to face him when I saw... He was already halfway through climbing between the barbed wire. Clyde? I got no answer, only the quiet crunching of leaves and twigs as he staggered his way into the trees and disappeared from my torchlight. Clyde? I looked back to Mr. Alban, hoping he would say something, anything, to sternly call Clyde back from the woods and make everything well, but still, he gazed off into the forest, fixated on something I couldn't see. I tug at his sleeve, trying to pull his attention, but it was no use. I looked around me to see similarly 
captivated faces, no one said anything. And the silence was deafening. I began to feel scared. Like I wasn't safe. The fleece I gripped pulled itself away, and silently, Mr. Alban pushed the wires apart, stooping down to step through the fence. I could only watch as his ear was torn, raggedly, by a rusted barb. But he didn't even flinch, completely ignorant of the warm red stream trickling down the side of his neck. I called out for him as he got through, but my pleas fell on deaf ears. Just like Clyde, he only walked calmly into the thick darkness. One by one, my classmates whispered in mind, absorbing infatuation as they clambered through the loose wire, tearing clothes, skin, and hair. There was something in their eyes. They glinted, twinkled. I don't mean they had a look to them, but literally, like they reflected something that once again was hidden from me. I heard Mrs. Gillian say, So bright. I never thought I'd see you again. While Lily pulled at her hand frantically, to no avail, she lost her grip and tumbled over backwards, lying there as her grandmother left her alone. The whole thing felt so unfamiliar. This wasn't something that was supposed to happen. I felt tears run down my cheeks, those of a terror I'd never felt before. It was so different from other scary situations, I couldn't understand why they would just wander off into the forest with no care for themselves or anyone else. The moths were gone now, down the same path my class had taken. The rustling footballs had grown distant and faded away into the night, leaving empty silence in their wake. Only I, Lily, Miss Hartford, and a boy called Jay remained. The only adult left in our midst looked scared and uncertain, as were we. She glanced between us and the dark forest a few times before making the decision we'd been fearing. Wait here, children. Wait, Wait here, here, children. children. I'm, I'm going to find them and bring them back. back. Don't, Don't worry. worry. I'll only be five or ten minutes. Her voice was shaky, but she was brave nonetheless, and climbed through the fence, vanishing into the all-consuming darkness. And so we waited. Five minutes, ten minutes, thirty. There was no sign of Miss Hartford, not a single muted shuffle of footsteps. In spite of the warm breeze, I shivered. I felt cold. Hopeless. The others didn't notice it. Something glinted between the trees. Only for a moment, but it looked slick and wet. I did not dare shine my flashlight, hoping that the dark would hold back whatever was inside it. With the flicker of movement I had seen came a smell. It was pungent. An old, musty, earthy scent that reminded me of a dead mushroom-infested log. A hot breeze carried it, like the breath of something unearthed from deep beneath the soil. The thought alone sent me into fight or flight. I chose flight. Flight. My legs bolted me upright and I found myself sprinting back up the hill, back to the car park where we'd started. But in truth, I just wanted to be away from that place, not caring where I might end up. I heard Jay and Lily's thumping feet moments later, my panic having spread to them just as quickly. More than once I had tripped and fell, clawing at the grass, as if at any moment I might feel a cold hand wrapped around my ankle and drag me back screaming into those terrible woods. I burst out into the graveled car park, 
covered in grass stains. For a long moment, I dreaded that there would be no more to follow me. I let out a breath I didn't know I'd been holding when Jay and then Lily emerged from the dusty path and skidded to a halt. The 20 minutes before parents started arriving was a lonely eternity for the three of us. A woman I recognized as Alexandra's mother stepped out of her silver Ford and scanned the car park in confusion. She made her way over to our small, shivering congregation. Hey, where are the rest of you? She asked, through none of us in particular. All I could muster in response was a feeble point in the direction of the field. She looked over, then back at me, then back at the pub with a frown of concern. Before she could interrogate me further, I saw my dad's minivan pull up, and I scrambled my way over to the passenger side door. Even as a ten-year-old, I tore the door open so hard I thought it might fall off entirely, then jumped into the seat without a word of greeting. How was it? Fun? My dad asked, blissfully unaware of the events that had taken place. I only sat there, staring out the windshield, saying nothing. Mark, are you okay? Can we just go home? Can we go home what? He asked. I chose to stay silent. And after a few seconds with the expected, please, my dad grunted, started the ignition and we drove away. School was off the next day, but I wasn't any the happier for it. My parents told me to just rest in my bedroom, play with my toys, that sort of thing. Even if I wanted to go out, who could I meet with? I wasn't really friends with Jay nor Lily. None of us wanted to leave the safety of our houses in any case. It was when my stomach began growling that I left my room to go and grab a snack from the kitchen. I paused on the bottom step as I heard low-toned voices conversing in the dining room. All of them? None of them? I was told that all they found were... A floorboard creaked as I shifted my weight, cutting off my mum from whatever she was about to say. Oh, hello, darling. Are you hungry? What are you talking about? My parents looked at each other, communicating through expressions alone. It's easy to see why they were hesitant to be the bearers of morbid news, but I think the lack of closure hurt me the most at the time. It only left my imagination to run amok with the possibilities of what happened to my class. That's why I'm writing this. I still have no idea. I might have been blessed with the gift of forgetting if I hadn't. By complete chance, stumbled upon an online news article pertaining to that godless night. It was dated two months, give or take, afterwards when the case had been closed. Some of the details were wrong. The article had stated the class had gone out searching for badges and that we'd been out until midnight, when I distinctly remember arriving home closer to 11. Those were but simple nitpicks, though. The part of it that brought me to attention was the second-to-last paragraph. It was told that shortly after the search party set out to find the missing children and teachers, their remains were found only a few hundred feet inside the woods. Dozens of clumps of hair, a few scraps of torn clothing, and scattered yet pristine finger and toenails, all found in a small circular area. DNA profiling confirmed that the remnants were those of my missing class, but that's as far as the trail went before going cold. I don't know where they ended up, but I can only hope they found peace. Where I only found questions with no answers. 
What did they see that compelled them to abandon everything they knew in its favor? And why was I spared? What process occurred that left only hair and nails behind? Where did the rest of them go? So I posted my story here in hope someone can shed any light on this. Where our cheap flashlights couldn't on that awful night. Can anyone help me figure out what happened to my fourth grade class? And so ends the story. A Light I Couldn't See. Written by Reflexion. Welcome, you amazing listeners. And thank you for listening. Tonight is the last set of stories for the next two and a half weeks. I'll be returning at the beginning of October as I'm going on a lovely trip away with my family to have a fantastico time. It's the first family trip I've ever been on and I'm really, really excited. Of all places, we're heading off to Malta. And I can't wait to see what it's like there. Thank you for your patience as well. On the last episode, I wasn't feeling well, very, very sick. And I had no way of actually recording. My throat was busted and my energy levels were gone. But I'm feeling a lot better now. And before I go, I'm going to endeavor to record some episodes just to keep you tidied over whilst I'm away. So I hope you enjoy them all. I'll even throw in a lovely old time radio or two, because what can I say? I love them and I love you. (laughs) Have a wonderful week and an overall wonderful September. And I will catch you when I'm back in October. I want to say a massive, massive thank you to Matto Star, the legend that supports this podcast, infinitesimally so. With your support, I'm able to do really, really cool things and flex my audio prowess, particularly on clarity. Today's episode, I'm using voice mod, which has been assisted by the lovely Matto Star and the likes of Leza Bauer and all of my supporters, actually. So I can afford voice modifiers. And in particular, this voice modifier is a live equalizer. So I can sound super crystal clear. And I hope you can hear the difference. So a big, big thank you again, you legend, my friend, Matto Star, for the support you give. You really are a beacon that illuminates this podcast. Thank you, mate. And I really want to thank Lezuka Rex, another legend that's been supporting me for so long. I'm so grateful to have you at my back, lifting me up and keeping this podcast chunking along. Also, a big thank you to both of you, where you both sent your love my way via Patreon commentary. I really appreciated that. I was too tired to like them at the time, and I was out of action basically the whole week. But thank you very much for your kind words. I really, I I swear, good vibes make me recover so much quicker. And I also want to thank my amazing El Grey Enforcers. I am lucky to have Chad Warren, Just Heather, Sunshine Days, Juicebox Andy, Peter Raffaelli, Michelangelo Yacone, Divided by Zero, Leah Fassig, Alia Arcane, Paige Kramer, and Jane Gumnick. You guys and gals are fantastic people. And I thank you from the bottom of my heart. For your ongoing support. I really do. And I can't wait to be back after my trip to start recording all over again. Pumping out new episodes in October, you legend. So thank you again for your support. If you feel like supporting me as well, uh, you can support me via my Patreon page, 
which is www.patreon.com forward slash SFGT. And there you'll find loads of different tiers. And I don't run any ads. So it's really out of the goodness of your heart. Or if you've got any spare dollar dues to send my way. No obligation, of course. I do this for the fun. But if you do want to support me, that's how you do it via Patreon. Now, pour your tea. Make it nice. Ensure your flavoring is precise. Like a story, let it flow. Let the fables and tales take you home. It's these stories that bring us together and old audio that reminds us of how we've changed. Stay a while, have a listen, and as always, I hope to see you again. Catch you, you amazing people, and have a wonderful, wonderful September. See you in October, you legends.